0: Well, my dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today is the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany with Lent beginning in just three days on Ash Wednesday. And we typically end this season of light, season of revealing who Jesus is as the Son of God, the bringer of the kingdom of heaven by sharing the story of his transfiguration. That mysterious episode, you remember, where Jesus hauls a few of his closest friends up on a mountaintop with him, and there he is revealed to them for who he really is as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah mysteriously appear with him, and the voice comes from heaven, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him echoing that voice that we heard at his baptism. It's all kind of fantastical stuff, and I suppose an appropriate way to end the season of Epiphany and bring us into Lent, where we will see not only who Jesus is, but we'll start to hear the story of what Jesus actually does for the sake of the world he loves. But we're not going up that mountain today. Um, The reason we're not heading up that mountain with Jesus is because I don't think we've quite finished with Jesus on this other mountain, (laughs) the one in which he gave his first sermon in Matthew's Gospel, that Sermon on the Mount, which we've been spending some time with over the course of these last Sundays. Because of where Easter falls this year, we don't get the full eight weeks of the Epiphany season. It's kind of cut a little bit short. And then we don't get the rest of his Sermon on the mountain. So I thought, to heck with that. I want to hear what Jesus has to say, especially in this text that I shared with you just a moment ago about worry, where he says, don't worry. Don't worry about anything. Hmm. Don't worry about anything, he says. Well, that's a nice sentiment, <laughs> but good luck telling us not to worry That's like telling your spouse to calm down in the middle of an argument. (laughs) Good luck with that, (laughs) right? Don't worry. Don't worry about anything. Worry. seems like it's built right into our DNA, you know? The mark of a mature person is one who has learned to worry appropriately, right, about the things that are worth worrying about, the things grown-ups worry about, their jobs, their relationships, their kids, their clothes, their cars, their houses, their government, the economy, their health, their schools, their football team, (laughs) all of it, right? We kind of know our kids are on the path to maturity when they start worrying appropriately about things like grades, and the condition of their hair and their clothes and any odors that might be emanating from them before they leave for school in the morning, right? There's this sneaking suspicion among us, I think, that if you don't worry appropriately about the things that need worrying about, you must not be a serious person. If you've adopted the what-me-worry attitude, You'll probably grow to look like that jug-eared, empty-headed mug on the cover of your bulletin this morning. The fictional character, Alfred E. Newman, whose face has graced the cover of every mad magazine for the last 73 years. Right? Anybody read mad when they were growing up? There's a few of us here I bet that did. Um, it's not even in print anymore, but it's online every month, and I think they still might mail it to a few subscribers. But His catchphrase, Alfred E. Newman, What, me, worry? Um, It carries with it that subtle or maybe not so subtle implication that the world is indeed full of all kinds of things worth worrying about. And it's kind of been Mad Magazine's mission for the past three quarters of a century to make fun of those things that we worry about from politics to culture. That anxiety and fear and worry that we carry around with us carry into our beds every night that's as real as the newscast that you watched hours before you went to bed telling you everything that you ought to be worried about and if it's not the newscast itself it's the 30 commercials that were aired during that newscast telling you everything that you should be worried about you huh? that maybe you could fix with the right prescription drug huh? or the right automobile or the right investment company lots of things to worry about and all that makes Jesus' words near the end of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel seem quaint, if not downright naive. Huh? Don't worry about anything. Don't worry about what your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Can any of you, by worrying, at a single span to your whole span of life? Don't worry then. Don't say, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? It's the Gentiles, it's the nations that worry about these things. And your Heavenly Father certainly knows that you need these things, but instead, instead, strive first for the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things you'll find will be given you as well. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's troubles enough for today. Huh. Isn't it true that the hardest words from Jesus for us are the, the words he speaks about things in which he is most plain, most clear. We love to argue and fuss and fight about things where Jesus was at best obtuse in the gospel or at worst, silent, never says a word about them. We argue about those things all the time. But where Jesus is very clear, that's when we start to get kind of nervous, Right? Jesus very clearly, plainly says, love your enemies. Mm? And I say, hard pass. No thanks. Jesus very clearly says, don't let money rule your life. And I say, are you kidding me? Have you seen the latest inflation numbers? Jesus says, don't give to someone expecting payback. Loan without expecting to be repaid. And I say, are you kidding? That is how our economy is built. Everything will fall apart if we start doing that. Jesus says, forgive those who hurt you. Even 70 times, seven times. And I say, eh, maybe if I figure they deserve it. And then maybe if I only feel like it. Jesus says, don't worry about your life. And I say, how is that even possible? Hmm? Jesus' whole sermon on the mount, it seems like one gigantic exercise in contradiction, doesn't it? Do you remember how he started that sermon? Blessing all of these people, telling us that in God's kingdom, the ones most blessed, the ones most happy, most worthy of envy, the ones who probably have the least to worry about, are the ones who in fact look like they have the most to worry about. The mourners, the poor, the hungry, the powerless, the persecuted. And then he goes on in that sermon to up the ante on every one of the commandments, suggesting that if we're really God's people, pretty soon our actions will start to actually fall into line with our hearts and our hearts will be geared towards God's will. Then he goes on, He doesn't stop there. He goes on to further suggest that the best witness we can make is not by practicing our piety in public. He says, say your prayers in private. huh? Fast without anybody else knowing about it. You're going to hear those words in three days on Ash Wednesday. The best missionary work is the stealthy kind of missionary work, he says. Then comes this two-by-four right between the eyes. Don't worry about your life. When he must know, if he knows human nature at all, that worry seems embedded into our DNA. It's how I'm wired. The more I live with this story, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the more I'm convinced that it is not a description of the way things are. But rather, it's more of a prophetic vision, you know, of what God is doing in the world beginning with his church. But Matthew's gospel calls the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus assumes that the church, the kingdom, is grounded first in faith, even if it's a pretty small, tenuous faith to start with. And that faith, even if it's only held by a few, is built of memory. Being able to look back and recognize the sustaining hand of a gracious God all along the journey. That's what those words from Isaiah were about, you know, that you heard in your first lesson today. Where the prophet echoes God's words saying, on a day of salvation, I have helped you. Hmm? In a time of favor, I've answered you. I've kept you. I've given you as a covenant to the people. That collective memory then becomes the soil in which faith can start to take root. What can then spring up is confidence, you see. Confidence that the same sustaining hand of God that's been with us all along in the past has not abandoned us today and will remain with us into whatever future filled with all kinds of uncertainty. But, you know, it's not enough to simply have long memories. If we're truly to believe Jesus when he says we don't need to worry so stinking much, maybe we have to learn to foster the right kind of memory. We have to start to remember right. A few years ago, I read a book by Laura Hillenbrand called Unbroken. Any of you read that book? No? How many have seen the movie unbroken. <laughs> okay, it's the story of Louis Zamperini, who grew up poor in California, in Southern California, at the first part of the last century, so um, quite a while ago, over 100 years ago. And Louis became one of the United States' premier distance runners in the 5,000 meters. He qualified for the Berlin Olympics in 1936, which you'll remember that was the Olympics that um, Jesse Owens won all of his gold medals in. Um, But Louis Zamperini did really well in the 5,000 meters. But shortly after those Olympics, of course, World War II broke out in a huge way. The United States got involved and Louis Louis, uh, enlisted in the service and he ends up um, in the Army Air Corps as a bombardier in the belly of a P-35. The P-35s were notorious for being not all that airworthy. (laughs) A lot of them went down. And Louis went down in the Sea of Japan. He survived the crash, but then he was adrift in a lifeboat for over 40 days with sharks circling, nothing to drink. It's a miracle he lasted. He was rescued, I want to say rescued in quotations, by the Japanese, and then he was put into a Japanese prison camp where he was mercilessly tortured for years by one particular commandant of that prison camp who made it his personal mission to destroy Louis Zamperini because he knew he was a U.S. Olympian, you see? So he figured, oh, he's a big athlete, right? I'm going to break him. That was his mission. Well, beyond all reasoning, Louis Zamperini managed to survive. Every ordeal... He found his way back home after the war. He even gets married. But then things start to fall apart for him. He's tortured. And you know what he's tortured by this time? His memory, right? In his his dreams every night, all he can see is the face of that Japanese commandant torturing him. And all he can think about is his desire for revenge. You know? To one day go back there and find that guy and kill him. He starts drinking a lot, self-medicating. His anger and his fear consume him. Worry about everything consumes him to the point where he's about to lose everything. His marriage, his work, maybe even his very life, you know, as he drinks himself to death. It's about that time in the late 1940s when things were at their darkest for him, that Louis's wife drags him and I mean, practically literally drags him to see a young evangelist that is in town, Los Angeles, and he's just started his ministry of touring the country with his message of forgiveness and transformation. And she figures this might be good for Louis to hear. So she takes him. This young evangelist's name was Billy Graham. And let's just say that the first time Louis heard him, it didn't take. (laughs) He thought he was full of it, right? But he went back. He went back to hear him again. And he went back to hear him again and again. And pretty soon, something started to break inside this unbreakable man, Louis Zamperini. He was so consumed by his own bitterness about his past He couldn't even begin to think of a different way of interpreting that past. But like I said, something started to break and it was this wall that he had built up inside of himself of bitterness and anger. It started to crumble. And the way Louis tells it, he says, I started to remember differently. I remembered not just the torture, not just the despair, not just the lostness. But he says, I remember a divine hand keeping me alive on that raft while sharks were circling. And I remembered a divine hand giving me strength and increasing my will even as my body was being broken in a Japanese prison camp. I remembered a divine hand bringing me home, bringing into my life this woman who loved me unconditionally. A child upon which that child would depend upon me absolutely, he says. And finally, he remembered bringing him, God bringing him a life not bound by anger, but instead defined by the ability to forgive and to trust God for his future. Louis Zamperini ended up actually making trips back to Japan to now visit these prison camps that were filled with his Japanese torturers, right? Because the Americans were occupying Japan. And he remembers actually meeting some of them face to face, the same guards that had made his life miserable, and forgiving them and sharing his message of transformation in Jesus. And Louis actually ended up starting a camp for boys in Southern California, boys who were at risk, who had grown up like him, very poor and without much of a hope for a future. Now, does that mean that Louis Zemperini, in receiving a faith that gave him a different interpretive lens for looking at his past, does that mean that from then on he never worried about his life, about what was coming next? I highly doubt that because he's human like the rest of us. But somewhere along the journey he came to the truth that worry is nothing more than wasting today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's trouble. So I'd leave it here with some powerful words that were written by Dr. E. Stanley Jones in a book that he wrote called uh, Transformed by Thorns. He said, I'm inwardly fashioned for faith, not for fear. Fear is not my native land, faith is. I'm so made that worry and anxiety are sand in the machinery of life. Faith is the oil. I live better by faith and confidence than by fear, doubt, and anxiety. In anxiety and fear, my being is grasping for breath. These are not my native air. But faith and confidence, I breathe then freely. These are my native air. A Johns Hopkins University doctor says, we don't know why it is, That worriers die sooner than non-worriers, but it is a fact. But I, who am simple of mind, think I know. We are outwardly and inwardly constructed in nerve and tissue, brain, cell, and soul for faith and not fear. God made us that way. To live by worry is to live against reality. And if you need something simpler then hear these words from author Mary Crowley, who writes, Every evening I turn my worries over to God. God's going to be up all night anyway. No reason for both of us to be. Indeed. Thanks be to God. Amen.